from the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. This is Pardes from Jerusalem. I'm Larry Kluger, a Pardes alum. This week, not so. This week, we're at the beginning of June, so it's time to make your plans to come to Pardes this summer. We have the Pardes Executive Learning Seminar and also various sessions of the Pardes Summer Programs all ready for you to join us here in Jerusalem. Please check out all the details at pardes.org.il. Thanks very much. This week, Nasso with Rabbi Dr. Mish Hammer Kasoy. Rabbi Hammer Kasoy is a member of the Pardes faculty and also serves as the Pardes Director of Admissions. And now, Rabbi Mish Hammer Kasoy. Thank you, Larry. Warning. This podcast does not contain foul language or even explicit language, but it is not for the light of heart. It does, however, have some very juicy Torah. Among the many topics included in our Parsha, Naso, is that of the Isha Sota, the woman who is suspected of betraying her husband. The Torah recounts, when a husband is overcome by jealousy, he is instructed to bring his wife to the temple and deliver her to the priest with an offering of bare barley flour, without the standard adornments of oil, frankincense, or even a proper serving dish. For it is a meal offering of jealousy which recalls wrongdoing. Taking earth from the tabernacle floor and sanctified water, the priest the priest bears the woman's head and places the meal offering in her hands while holding the bitter water in his. The priest administers the curse of adjuration to the woman. And I quote, If you have strayed, may the Lord make you a curse and an imprecation among your people as the Lord causes your thigh to sag and your belly to distend. May this water that induces the spell enter your body, causing the belly to distend and the side to sag. And the woman shall say, Amen, Amen. The priest puts these curses down in writing and rubs it off into the water of bitterness then forces her to drink. And so it goes. If she's guilty of betrayal, the bitter water does its work. Her, betty, her belly distill, distends, her thigh sags. She becomes a curse among her people. But if the woman has not defiled herself and is pure, she shall be unharmed and able to retain seed. This is a graphic passage, tough on the ears of the modern reader, especially the female one. And so this female reader, at least, can't help but be struck by the detail recounted in Mishnah Yoma 10.3 that the famous Median queen Helena Vadiabin, who converted to Judaism about 30 CE, chose to donate a golden plaque on which the passage of the Sota woman was inscribed and hung in the tabernacle so that it could glisten and be read from both the tabernacle and the hall. Now, we don't have a lot of queens in our history, and there are so many things to donate. Why would Queen Helena choose to lift up this passage specifically, a passage that to me feels like a kind of text of terror, for it is really nothing other than trial by ordeal? On a closer examination, I managed to take a deeper breath. There are all sorts of ways this law could be designed to protect women. Even in modern-day Israel, really, last year dozens of Arab women were, mu were murdered by their family members in so-called honor killings 
for so-called offenses, such as inappropriate dress or appearance of romantic relations. So in that context, it's easy to imagine that the Sota ordeal was designed to make sure this is not part of our culture, to place clear limits on the rights of the Israelite man and his family over his wife. Adultery may be a capital punishment, but it needs to be prosecuted and proven in court. Jealous husbands may not take the law into their own hands. And of course, it is essential to remember that while this ritual is trial by ordeal and prescribes a strong shaming of the accused woman, on a scientific basis, drinking dirty water is harmless. And as the Rambam points out, the water can only hurt you with divine intervention. Sota is the only case in the Torah where sin is punished only by a miracle. Furthermore, the threat, the threatened punishment is a fallen belly and a distended thigh. While the rabbis understand this as a prelude to death, other commentaries actually read this as a simple abortion or maybe sterility, even though adultery itself is a capital crime. So that the Sota ritual is actually a more lenient punishment um, than that which the theoretical crime um, would normally endure. Um, that All of that, what I've just said, is on the level of pshat. The rabbis of the Talmud, however, add a whole layer of interpretation which further restricts the scope of this ordeal. The, ra- the Torah prescribes both the apparent transgression and the husband's reaction to it in a strange way. First, doubling of the offense. A man had, has had carnal relations with her, unbeknownst to her husband, and she keeps hidden or secret. And then there's a re- and then there's also a doubling of the reaction. The husband is overtaken by a spirit of jealousy, and he he's jealous. So this double-doubling um, serves as fertile ground for the rabbis to, um, which they, and they identify it as an allusion to a two-stage legal process. The jealous husband is not permitted to be generally suspicious of his wife in all circumstances. Rather, there's a certain man out there who has raised his concerns. In such a circumstance, the husband has the right to kinah, to address his jealousy and suspicion and demand that she be careful in her interactions with that specific individual. And this demand needs to be expressed to her in the presence of two witnesses. At the second stage, she secludes herself with this very individual for a period of time sufficient to have relations. Now, parenthetically, I just want to note that this is a no-no with any two members of the opposite sex, whether or not there is a cause for suspicion. Modern guidelines for preventing sexual harassment and abuse, keep encounters observable and interruptible, was mandated by Jewish law thousands of years ago. But in this case, there are no witnesses to any actual foul play. There are, in fact, witnesses to the private encounter itself. And only in this situation is the Sota ritual activated? I'm interested to hear reactions from you. But for me, these are tremendously reassuring reforms. 
A man is not entitled to cloister his wife and burden her with blanket suspicion. And even specific suspicions need to be addressed through legal challenge channels and be backed up with witnesses. Now, it's important to recognize that according to Jewish law, once a woman has committed adultery, the husband and wife are commanded to divorce. So it makes sense that once she's willingly secluded herself with someone with whom she's specifically suspected, the rabbis would demand that they either divorce or clarify that doubt. However, a woman can never be forced to drink these waters. She always, according to rabbinic interpretation, has the right to demand a divorce. And of course, he can always divorce her as well. In fact, the rabbis harp again and again on how preferable it is to abandon the procedure. The rabbis remind the woman repeatedly that God's name will be erased as part of, of washing the oath into the waters and drinking it. Spare God's name for being erased and go your separate ways, they implore. So the only time this ritual would be invoked according to rabbinic interpretation, would be in a situation where both husband and wife are committed to rehabilitating their relationship and they need to reestablish trust. Significantly, the rabbis also add a double element of mutuality to the ordeal. While only the woman endures the humiliation and ordeal of drinking the bitter waters, as described in the Torah, the rabbis say that the divine wrath will simultaneously impact both the adulterous woman and her partner. Conversely, the husband can only invoke this ritual if he too is clean of sin. Even if he just has relations with her after he's warned her and she violated that warning, he's impugned himself and the waters are no longer effective. Perhaps it's no great surprise that Mishnah um, Sota 9.9 relates the whole ordeal was completely discontinued sometime in the Second Temple period because the community was not upholding the moral standards that made it singling out a few women reasonable. Granted, these reforms are not exactly a display of modern egalitarianism, but they do reflect tremendous improvement in the protections offered women. So to summarize, at the biblical level, the Sota ordeal may even should be disturbing to modern ears. But for the ancients, it would have been a significant protection for women, a demand that men not act on their jealous urges independently, but rather submit them to public policing. And the ordeal which the sus suspected woman would have endured was harmless unless God intervened to punish her. The rabbis seemed to further expand these protections, and I identified a few of the ways this was true. First, by creating the legal institution of kina, issuing warnings in the presence of witnesses and restricting the ritual to the situations in which that warning is clearly violated. Secondly, making this ritual an optional one, only available in situations where the couple was committed to staying together. And finally, making the punishment a mutual one that impacts and is dependent on both genders. Still, I admit that I still feel uncomfortable. To me, the Soto ordeal seems like the craziest kind of marriage counseling. It's only em employed by a couple that wants to stay together, but it is deliberately publicly humiliating. Can you imagine having a healthy marriage after being subjected to something like this? It seems clear to me that the problems in this marriage are much deeper than the possibility that the woman was unfaithful. In fact, 
when I go back to the beginning of the conflict, it seems clear to me that the problem is twofold. Shachav ishota shichvatzeret v'ne'elam me'nei isha v'nistara v'hi nitma'ah v'eid ein bav v'hi lo nitpasa. She keeps secret the fact that she has defiled herself without being forced, and there's no witness against her. That's problem one. Problem two, as I continue in the Chumash, v'avara lavruach kina v'kinat ishto v'hi nitma'ah. But a fit of jealousy comes over him and he is wrought up about the wife who has defiled him herself. Or if a fit of jealousy comes over what, over him and he's wrought up about his wife, although she has not defiled herself. So there's two problems. One, this betrayal of the woman, possible betrayal of the woman. And second, that the husband is consumed with jealousy that may or may not be a reflection of a genuine betrayal. Either one of these problems is significant and independent of the other. And the sages highlight this by putting the kina rite of issuing warnings in the center of the ritual. The ritual is only possible and necessary because the husband was consumed with suspicion about a specific person. And it is this mistrust that has poisoned the relationship. So again, I ask, how can the Sota ritual possibly heal this broken dynamic? And I'd like to suggest a direction by way of a story from the Yerushalmi, which was told by Rabbi Zavadia, the son-in-law of Rabbi Levi. Rabbi Meir used to deliver a sermon in the synagogue of Hamat every Friday night. And there was a woman there who was accustomed to listen. One time, the sermon went over. She went and sought to enter her house and found that the candle had gone out. Her husband said to her, where were you? She said to him, I was listening to the preacher. Now this, I take a break. Not, that is not amazing behavior. Friday night is family time. The husband may well have been expecting intimacy and instead his wife was busy gazing after some rabbi. As someone who's very particular about her bedtime, I can identify with his frustration. And yet his reaction seems a bit extreme. He said to her, from such and such, I swear that this woman will not enter here into her house until she goes and spits in the face of that preacher. In a remarkable inverse of the soda water ritual, the husband wants to inflict bitter spit water on the rabbi. Not pretty form for sure. But note Rabbi Mayer's reaction. Rabbi Mayer saw with divine spirit and gave himself a sore in his eye. He said, Is there any woman out there who knows how to cure a sore eye by a charm? Could she come and charm it? And her neighbors gave her, gave her an elbow into the belly. Your answer will bring you into your house. Make yourself a charm for him, and you spit in his eye. And she quickly raised her hand, and she ran to the front of the room volunteering, and he said to her, do you know how to cure eyes by charm? But at that moment, she lost her courage. From her great awe of him, she said, no, absolutely not. He said to her, well, spit in it seven times, and that will be good for it. And once she had spit in his eye, he said, go and tell your husband, one time you told me, and you spit seven times. Now, God gives Rebbe Mayer the insight to see that this woman's being abused by her husband as a result of Rebbe Mayer. And, he, and he, he creates the false pretense that allows her to demonstrate her, fide, her fidelity to her husband and fulfill 
the, um, his command that she violate Rebbe Mayer's honor by spitting in his eye. Only afterwards does Rebbe Mayer make clear that this was all part of Rebbe Mayer's great plan to restore husband and wife to one another. After all of this becomes clear, his students say to him, Rabbi, do we degrade the Torah in such a manner? How could you allow yourselves to, yourself to be humiliated in this way? If They suggest, if you would have told us, would we not have brought him and whipped him on the bench in order to force him to consent to be reconciled with his wife? We could have used force to accomplish the same purpose. Rebbe Mayer rejects the student's desire to use force. And he said to them, should not the honor of, Re- of Mayer be equivalent to the honor of his creator? If, with respect to the Holy One, the Holy Name, which is written in holiness, the scripture says that it should be erased by water to effect peace between a man and his wife, is it not all the more so with respect to Mayer? Rebbe Mayer's students are jealous on his behalf. We should have used force. But Rebbe, Noer, Rebbe Mayer knows full well that this will not be effective in terms of restoring real peace between the husband and wife. Instead, he models healthy behavior for the nasty husband, shows him what would have been an appropriate way to behave. And Rebbe Mayer tells us where he gets the idea directly from God in the context of the bitter Sota waters. In the entire ritual, God plays a central role. God responds to the injustice against the husband and allows him to release his anxiety of the wife's betrayal by promising to to visit divine wrath on her and her partner if they are guilty. But God also responds to the injustice against the woman. She is being subjected to the whim of a jealous husband, a person who, while claiming to value their relationship, is demonstrating his patriarchal power over her by publicly humiliating her. And God steps in here as well, not by showing God, not by showing God's even greater power, but by modeling what real power is about, forgoing honor. We've already noted the rabbi's anxiety around this ritual. They beg the couple to simply divorce so as to avoid the desecration inherent in erasing God's name. But it is God who has conceived that model of having God's name erased. God is content to show his power and honor by foregoing it. It is that model of concession and forbearance that Rebbe Mayer adopts and models in his relationship with the jealous husband of his loyal congregant. Perhaps their lives, perhaps there, is a direction that we can adopt for how the Sota ritual could conceivably be healing for broken trust in marriage. Hashem is modeling what is really needed to have, um, what really needed to have happened in the first place in order to have a more successful marriage. The posture of concession and forbearance is essential to happy partnership. But Rebbe Mayer also demonstrates to us how this attitude must be abstracted to relationships of all types. Instead of getting caught up in each other's, um, in other people's jealous fits, God and Rebbe Mayer invite us to dissipate the tension by letting go and modeling a spirit of generosity and humility and forbearing. It is so natural to be defensive when someone accuses us unfairly. But... God and Rebbe Mayer suggest sometimes the best defense is not to go on the offense, but rather to let the aggression wash over us. 
We may find that conflict solves itself more quickly, but even if it doesn't, we ourselves feel better because we're holding on to less anger. Just as God is not diminished at all by having God's holy name blotted out for a good cause, we too may find ourselves fully intact after forbearance, forbearance, and concession. Now, with this in mind, perhaps we can understand why Queen Helene sponsored the Sota plague, plaque of all things. Not because the Sota ritual, not just because the Sota ritual is ironically intended in both its biblical and its rabbinic incarnations to protect women from greater violence at the hands of their jealous husbands by limiting his power over her. She may also have wanted to focus on God's vatranut, God's forbearance, because this is the best way to preserve strong relationships. May we all be blessed with a Shabbat of peace, forgiveness, and trust, free of jealousness and unnecessary suspicion. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you, Rabbi Hammerkasoy. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you on the next episode of Predace from Jerusalem. Jerusalem.